Okay, this week's parsha is Vayishlach. Vayishlach is, and he sent. And it begins with Jacob sending messengers. All the way at the end of last week's parsha, Jacob makes his flight away from Lavan, from Laban, his father-in-law, middle of the night. He has this standoff with Laban in the middle of the night, and they eventually agree on a pact. And Jacob heads towards Israel, and Laban goes back to his town. And as he was approaching Israel, the last verses of last week's parsha describe angels coming to visit him. And now he has a cadre of angels along with his family. His family now comprises 12 children and four wives. Plus he has uh, uh, lots of cattle and lots of um, big animals, small animals, servants. He's a a big contingency. He's a big group. And now there's a group of angels joining them as well. And in this week's parasha, it starts off when that he starts to send the angels ahead to be scouts to find out what's going to be, uh, you know, what are the potential threats. And specifically, he's worried about his brother Esau. His brother Esau, we left him a few parshas ago when Jacob was fleeing from Esau. And now he's going back. And if you remember, Esau was hell-bent upon killing Jacob because he thought he stole, uh, he stole... Uh, his his birthright and his blessings uh, deceptfully. And now he's going to kind of see what's going on with, uh, with Esau, with these angels. Now, this first section of this parsha, the Talmud tells us that whenever the rabbis would go to Rome to negotiate on behalf of the Jewish people, they would always study this parsha intently beforehand. Because this parsha, which describes a clash of Jacob and Esau, and the exact methods that Jacob used to prepare, and the you know the, the strategies and tactics that he had in place, all those are very instructive for any future encounter that Jacob has with Esau anytime down the road. In fact, a little historical nugget, in the late 1970s, when Menachem Begin, the president, the Prime Minister of Israel, was negotiating a peace treaty with Egypt. So he came to, came to Camp David to have a summit with Anwar Sadat and, and President Carter. And the story goes that he went to, to meet with three prominent Torah leaders in the United States, uh, Rabbi Moshe Feinstein, Rabbi Joseph Salavechik, and Volbavitcher Rebbe. And he met them independently, and he asked them all three of them for advice, and all three of them told him, study this parsha before this, this Torah section, before you have this encounter with, uh, with uh, potential foes. And the famous Ramban, the very famous Ramban, in his introduction to this week's Parsha, where he describes the, you know, the methodology that Jacob is, empl- is employing and the eternal lessons for us. So the first thing uh, to note is that Jacob, he has angels. Can you imagine you have angels joining your, your group, your contingency? You feel pretty confident, right? Yeah, yeah. You you feel pretty good, right? Uh, You'll be yeah, of course. Uh, You would feel pretty confident with the outcomes. Uh, Yet the first thing that we see Jacob does is he prepares a huge bribe. Number two, he prepares for war, and number three, he prays. And lastly, he has a a plan B, a contingency plan, what to do if things go really bad, and he takes the group and splits it into two, divides it into two, that way, if one group is attacked, 
the other group will survive. So he's really play, uh, planning for doomsday, so to speak. Why are you, what, what are you worried about? Don't you see that you have angels with you? You have the Almighty with you? You've survived so many other tribulations previously? So the first lesson we, that, that, that we learn from this is that no matter how elevated we are spiritually, we also cannot rely on miracles. You rely on miracles, miracles don't happen. We have to prepare as if you know, we're engaging in any battle, even at our highest spiritual state. And in fact, precisely Jacob, at, the, you know, at, at his peak, with the cadres of angels, if he's preparing for war and for bribery from prayer and for all that, we do that as well. And uh, additionally, that Jacob used these three or four different approaches to warfare, we follow the same as well. We, we, we pray on one hand, always you pray. Don't be too prideful to give a bribe or some form of appeasement. Now, appeasement has bad connotations, but uh, appeasement while preparing for the potential of war. And uh, if military victory is unachievable, escape. Divide the group into two and see whatever you could do to survive. And I think that was always the Jewish attitude uh, on this matter uh, for centuries. Recently, um, a lot of the kind of Zionist bravado, there's a lot of Zionist bravado uh, that developed in the early stages of, of, of the Zionist movement where they, you know, they promulgated this attitude that, you know, we are no longer the wimps. No one's going to push us over. We're going to win our own. We're going to have to, you know, develop our own defense capabilities. But also that, that kind of bled into a little bit of, 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 of arrogance, uh, and to not ever bribe. You know, like Israel doesn't, we don't negotiate with terrorism, which in general I think is a good idea. But sometimes you have to take a terrorist like Esau and give him a huge bribe. And if that's going to save people's lives, it's okay to do that. But we see that we see this balance. We can't rely on the goodwill of other people. Clearly, you got to prepare for war. But also, we have to realize that sometimes, if military victory is unachievable, we have to find other means to secure our goal and our security. In in the early 1930s, when Hitler rose to power, uh, there's a lot of saber rattling on his part against the Jews, and. Some Jews in America tried to organize a worldwide bo- boycott of German uh, products. Uh, and in fact, they had a huge convention in Madison Square Garden with 20,000 people, and some rabbis got up there and spoke, we're going to fight the Germans by boycotting them. And if you actually read about this, this incensed the Germans, and, uh, and Goebbels prepared a whole propaganda, and it caused so much terrible results on the back end and it kind of incited the the you know, genocidal uh, desires or it you know, fueled the gener- genocidal fires and it, it, that clearly was not the right approach it didn't it didn't help clearly in, in retrospect uh, and who's to say that if another approach was undertaken it would have been better who knows but clearly Jacob the first thing he does this first encounter with 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 Esau was overwhelming him with a bri- with a bribe, and the law of reciprocity indicates that a bribes work. Bribes actually work uh, to a certain degree, and that should be pursued as well. 
we don't want to insist on fighting a losing, losing battle. Yes, we prepare for fight, we prepare for that eventuality, but a bribe to a peace. So what, so what, is, so what does Jacob do here? So he sends him uh, a message like this. So he tells his, his, the angels going ahead, tell Esau, my lord Esau, so said your servant Jacob, so he's humbling himself. I, I've lived with Laban, and I've lingered until now. I've acquired oxen and donkeys and flocks and servants and maidservants. And I'm sending to tell you, to, uh, to tell my Lord to find favor in your eyes. He's very conciliatory. He's very, lots of humility in, in, in his message. So the angels return back to Jacob and they tell him, Oh, you sent us to give a message to Esau. He happens to be meeting you halfway. He's actually marching towards you with 400 men. So that sounds pretty, uh, pretty ominous. And what does Jacob do? Jacob gets very frightened and very sad, very distressed. Rashi tells us that he has two fears here. He has fear number one that he'll, maybe he'll get killed. And fear number two, maybe he'll, he'll be forced to kill others. And neither of those are good outcomes. So he, the first thing he does, he divides the group into two camps that at least one of them will survive. And then he starts praying. And it's very interesting to, to look at the precise wording of his prayer. God of my father Abraham, God of my father Isaac, Hashem who said to me, return to your land and to your relatives and I will do good with you. So he's reminding God that God was the one who told him to go back to Israel. Uh, I have been diminished by all the kindness and by all the truth that you have done with, uh, you have done to your servant. For with my staff I crossed this Jordan and now I have become two camps. So this is a, a, an interesting highlight of, uh, of, of the prayer to look at. He's telling the Almighty, when I came, when I crossed the Jordan the first time, when I crossed the Jordan East, all I had was a single staff. That's it. A little walking aid. That's what I had. And now look at me. I have 12 children and four wives and this whole camp. The Almighty, you did so much good for me. And his fear is, his concern is, what he's worried about is that maybe he exhausted all his good deeds because of all the goodness that God gave him, there's nothing left. And to us, that seems strange. We, we like to tend to think that we're very meritorious, and we are. But Jacob was more meritorious than us, right? And he received goodness, and to him, he was worried and concerned that the goodness would diminish from his spiritual uh, coffers. And now he's vulnerable and that's why he's really scared and terrified, and he has this prayer. And I think it's a good lesson for us to realize that, and we've spoken about this uh, in, in the past, that every goodness that we get in this world can potentially draw out of our spiritual coffers. You know, we do a mitzvah, and there's a, it's, 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 it's doing an act of God. It's an act of faith. And it really accrues towards our benefit. We don't want to cash that in this world, because we cash it in this world, it's it's a very poor exchange. We want to hold it for the world to come. But Jacob is telling us, all the goodness that I have, I cross with a staff, and now look at my family now, look at, look at this party that we have returning, and now I'm worried, Jacob, the, the man of, of tremendous righteousness, he's worried that his, uh, his spiritual account is diminished and depleted, and now he's at the mercy of, of, of Esau. Um, so what's the nature of the prayer? Rescue me, please, from the hand of my brother, from the hand of Esau, for I fear lest him come and strike me down, mother and children. The words are not, there's no superfluous words here. 
he tells the Almighty, rescue me from the hand of my brother, from the hand of Esau. It could, that, that sentence could have been condensed. Rescue me from my, the hand of my brother Esau. It says, rescue me from the hand of my brother, from the hand of Esau. Or it could have just said, rescue me from Esau, from the hand of Esau. Well, it, it seems like Jacob has two primary fears that he's trying to uh, uh, shield himself from. He's scared of his brother, i.e. Esau is going to come and could potentially try to strike him down. That's his fear of Esau. He's scared of Esau. Esau is a wicked person, very violent, who wants to kill him. But he's also scared of my brother. He, he's terrified that what's going to be if Esau comes and wants to have brotherly love. He says, oh, we're brothers. I forgive everything he did in the past. Of course, he's worried that Esau is going to come and, and strike him and fulfill you know, his violent pledge to kill him that he made many years earlier. Mm-hmm. But before that, he's even more worried that Esau is going to treat him like a brother and he's going to want to live in close harmony. And the spiritual uh, deleterious effects on the Jewish community are going to be vast because now they're not going to have the spiritual isolation that's going to allow them to flourish because they'll have Esau and all of his cronies hanging around there, and that's going to impact negatively the uh, the flourishing of the nascent Jewish people. Okay, so that's the prayer. And then he sends this tribute. The Torah goes into detail. What, what's this bribe that he's sending? Uh, 200 female goats, 20 male goats, 200... I don't know how to pronounce that word even. Use, thank you. Use. And 20 rams. So use are females and you send less males than females. Sheep, yes. 30 nursing cows with their colts. 40 cows and 10 bulls. 20 she donkeys and 10 he donkeys, male donkeys. A little trivia, by the way. This verse, so chapter 32, verse 15, in Hebrew, every single word ends with the same letter. So if anyone asks you, is there a verse in the Torah that every single word in the verse ends with the same letter? You'll say, yeah, there is one. And it's in Genesis chapter 32, verse 15. They all end with the letter mem. Okay, so, so he, 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 he prepares this enormous bribe. And he breaks the bribe up. This is a good tactic. He breaks the bribe up into several groups. So he has... Each group brings, you know, a, a portion of the bribe, and then there's a little break, and then another, another, another contingency comes, and then another one, and then another one, and he's like, "Oh, I got his bribe. Okay, great. Oh, there's another one." <laughs> uh, I read in a, I read in a, I don't remember which book it was, one of the famous uh, pop psychology books, that the the best way uh, to get the most tips if someone is a server at a restaurant, so they found that if they um, if when they give the bill, they give them a candy, that increases the likelihood of a tip and a bigger tip. But they said the best, the best way to get the most positive response was is when you give them the bill, you give them a candy, and then you walk five steps away, you say, oh, and you pull out another candy and you give them again. And that yielded greater results than giving them two candies straight up. Because it's like, oh, you give me a candy, wow. Oh, and there's another one. And we, how do they know? Like, we, we see this already from the Torah. Jacob breaks up the tribute, the gift, into several 
different groups, and he says, okay, you come, and you give us the East Sound. He's like, wow, what an impressive gift. And then there's more, and there's more, and there's more, there's more, and that really works its magic in, uh, in, in creating the feeling of reciprocity that he's almost mandated to respond to. He sends off this massive gift, this massive bribe. He gets up in the middle of the night. He takes his two wives and his two uh, uh, maidservants, handmaids, and his 11 children, and they cross a certain river. Now, there's a problem with the verse, because we already learned last week, and we mentioned it already today, that Jacob has not 11 children, he has 12 children. Right? He has 11 sons and one daughter. But here it only mentions 11, 11 children. So Rashi tells us that one of his children, Dina, his daughter, he hid her in a box. He put her away. He put her in the suitcase. Why? Because he knows he's about to meet Esau. And Esau has an appetite for women. We've seen that already. He's already married multiple women. And he's going to meet his new niece, and he'll say, wow, what a lovely girl. She looks like a good match to enter my harem. And Jacob was not happy about that at all, and he said he wasn't happy with those prospects, and he locked her in a box, poked a few holes, gave her a few carrots, and said, we'll take you out after the danger has passed. And that's why it only mentions 11 children. That's what Rashi tells us. And now, if the continuation of, of our story, Dina is a major part of this parsha because she goes out to hang out with her friends, and she's abducted, and terrible things happen to her in this week's parsha. And Rashi tells us, Rashi quotes the Talmud, that the reason why Jacob was punished to have his daughter undergoes such terrible uh, persecutions in this week's parasha was because he hit her in the box. Why? He should have allowed Dina to be outside, outside of the box, think out of the box. And if she would have married Esau, she would have brought him back to the proper ideology. That's what Rashi says. And this is surprising in a few accounts. Jacob knows Esau really well. He's the one who has pledged to kill him. It's not the kind of guy you want as a son-in-law. It's not the kind of guy you want to give your daughter off to. But I think clearly, you know, there, there, there is some sort of criticism here that the Talmud is levying against Jacob. And to us, he did the prudent thing. You want to protect your children, certainly your daughter, your young daughter. So, so what's this idea that he is punished or he's at least criticized for not allowing uh, for not allowing Dina to be exposed to Esau. Now, there is a Talmud, a very interesting Talmud that says, describes a couple, a husband and wife, that they were both, they were both very righteous. He was righteous, she, she was righteous, and unfortunately they don't, weren't having any children, they were infertile, and therefore they got divorced. <clears throat> and each one of them went and married <clears throat> someone who wasn't righteous. So the righteous man married a non-righteous woman, and the righteous woman married a non-righteous man. The Talmud says, what happened? The man, the righteous man, became not righteous like his wife. And the, not, the righteous woman, well, she made her husband righteous as well. And I think the indication is 
that the woman has a lot of power in guiding the spiritual kind of level of the home more than the man. And therefore, and we see this a lot in our, in our lives. The women are very spiritual. The woman's the one who's dragging the husband to shul, you know, and he's like, all he wants to do is watch football. Come to shul, come on. <laughs> and, and you see that a lot. It's not, of course, it's not a raw universal rule, but it's, it's, it's an idea that's very old already. And it's still common today to see it. The lesson, overall lesson is, is that there's a greater likelihood of the woman influencing the man than the man influencing the woman. That being said, right, so this is at least the grounds for the criticism for, for Jacob. But regardless, I think clearly Jacob did the right move in trying to shield his daughter. But maybe, maybe when he locked it, he locked it with an extra lock, you know, maybe he, maybe he, whatever it was, he kind of twisted it too hard or, or he didn't protect. He was maybe overprotective, and he didn't at all think about trying to help his brother. Whatever it is, there was some slight degree of criticism that he never entertained the possibility that Dina can actually help bring his brother back in the fold, and that's why he's that's why he's punished. There's a there's a, a important episode that happens here before Jacob actually meets Esau. So right after he collects his kids and they cross over the river, he has this mysterious, enigmatic encounter with a man which turns out to be an angel and they're fighting the whole night and they're struggling the whole night they're wrestling the whole night and in the morning uh, they see that this this man this angel sees that he cannot overwhelm Jacob so he hits him on his thigh he dislodges dislocates his th- his leg and that's the result of the battle. And then this person, this angel, insists on allowing Jacob to let him go, to let him leave. Because it's the morning, Jacob tells him famous, famously, I'm not going to send you unless you give me a blessing. He says, what's your name? My name is Jacob, Yaakov. He says, no, you're not going to be called Jacob anymore. You're going to be called Israel. Why? Yisrael. Kisarisa im Elohim ve'im anashim vatucha. Because you struggled with God, with spiritual forces, and with men, and you prevailed. Jacob asks him what his name is. He says, well, don't ask me my question, what my name is. And he leaves. That person leaves, he gets a blessing, and he leaves. That, that's the story. Very strange story. And like we said, the, the, the epilogue of the story is that the Jewish people are given a mitzvah, the sons of Israel are given a mitzvah to not eat from a certain part of the animal, from the sciatic nerve which essentially renders the entire hind quarters of the animal inedible because you have to remove that, and it's a very complicated process to do that. It is possible to do it, but you have to have you have to be an expert in a process called nikur, which is removing that those that vein and uh, and the various fats that are also prohibited. Mm-hmm. So some people um, are able to do that if you're especially trained. There's some people who do that. Uh, it's not really? so common. So it is permissible. Yes, in yes. The, the meat, the meat's fine. Just the that nerve and the certain rabbi, fats the there. Okay, so let's try. Let's try to let's try to piece together this uh, this episode. Jacob is having the struggle with this man now, and they're struggling the whole night, and neither of them could overwhelm the other one. And then in the morning, once it's morning, he touches and hits him on his on his thigh, and. 
and hobbles him, but doesn't vanquish him. And then they have the thing, well, you're able to survive with God and with man, and well, I'm going to rename you. Very strange episode. So a lot of different interpretations, many different explanations of what's going on over here. I found one that I liked a lot here in the Rabbeinu Bechai. He says that what essentially distinguishes man from angel? We know that man has a soul. The soul, if you were to isolate the soul, it would be very comparable to angels. Problem is that we don't have just a soul. We have also a body that blankets the soul. And the body is entirely in opposition both to our soul and to angels. So when the angel is struggling with Jacob, he's kind of inspecting him to see like where... Can I overwhelm him? Where can I show my superiority? I'm an angel after all. He's a human. He's got a body. And the body influences them to sin. And he's the whole night he's struggling and he cannot find a single place where Jacob is less than an angel. Jacob is an equal. Pretty remarkable. In the morning, he realizes he cannot overwhelm him, i.e. Jacob is like an angel. Jacob is only influenced by his soul But there was one sin that he could find with Jacob, and that's his thigh. If you remember, a couple weeks back, Abraham tells Eliezer to to place his hand by his thigh to swear. And the thigh is representative of the mitzvah of circumcision. So it's that whole region, says the angel, there is I could find a sin with Jacob. Why? Because Jacob married two sisters, and the Torah explicitly indicates that marrying two sisters simultaneously is prohibited. And therefore, that was the one area where Jacob was uh, was uh, deficient with respect to the angel, and that's why he was able to strike him specifically over there. We think of us as being preceding the Torah. That's, that's the mistake that we make. We assume that we're static. Comes along the Torah and gives us all these rules. The truth is that the Torah preceded all of us, and the Torah is the blueprint for the world, and in fact, we are made to mirror the Torah. So, Talmud says that we are comprised of 613 limbs. Is it a shot that there's 613 mitzvahs? The truth is, is that the reason why we were crafted in this manner is to be an exact mirror to Torah, and the Torah being the way of achieving perfection in the entirety of our existence and all 613 elements of our existence. Thus, we could talk about, well, how, how could he be required to do mitzvos before the mitzvos were given? Well, that's a good question. But he still had 613 limbs, right? Right? That he did. No one, no one, no one argues that humans physiologically changed at Sinai, right? No one makes that argument. So he had 613 limbs, and those limbs were they governed by his soul or by his body? Well, the answer is, if you do a mitzvah, that mitzvah transforms the associated limb into being a soul versus a body, or being soul dominant over body. Thus, if he's having an encounter with an angel, angel is entirely spiritual. Jacob is almost entirely spiritual because he did the mitzvahs before they were given. Well, you know, what's the, we think of mitzvahs as being just instructions. He looked at mitzvahs as being completion or being a method to achieve completion and to achieve domination of soul over body. And he performed the missions before they were given, but there was one that he didn't perform, 
then he had reasons why he didn't perform them. He was outside of Israel. There's other reasons given. But Jacob married two sisters, which is against the Torah, i.e. that particular mitzvah he did not have, and therefore he did not have that elevated existence in the, in the related limb to be equal, at least, to the angel. And therefore, despite the fact he wasn't obligated to do it, he didn't gain the benefits of the mitzvah, and thus he was vulnerable when the angel attacked him at that particular point to losing that small battle because the angel was spiritual there and he still had vestiges of physicality, of mundaneness that, uh, that lowered his level vis-a-vis the angel. So the Ramban, the Ramban says that the reason why Rachel died and not Leah was because he married Leah first and therefore Rachel was the one who encroached upon the prohibition against marrying two sisters. He only observed the Torah outside of Israel, but as he's approaching and entering the land of Israel, he can't be married to two sisters, and Rachel was the one who married second, therefore she had to die in order to undo that, undo the prohibition. So, so it's to interesting know. to note that according to this explanation, what would have happened if the angel struggled with Jacob once they already arrived into Israel and he wasn't married to two sisters? Well, then he would have been victorious entirely because he wouldn't have had that drawback that compromised his, his spiritual perfection. Jacob, who is almost like an angel, is struggling with Esau's angel and is almost able to prevail over an angel uh, with the exception of this one injury that he sustains from that encounter. And like we said, like this is, this is the manual of, of navigating those relationships. A little bit of bribe, a little bit of war, a lot of prayer, and uh, sometimes there's a struggle. And it's, a, it's an entire night of struggle, and only in the morning can we see if we'll prevail. Of course, there's a lot of illusions in that. So Jacob asks for a blessing, and he says, okay, what's your name? Your name's Jacob. No, it's not Jacob, it's Israel. And indeed, this is repeated again. Uh, this, is, this is chapter 32. In chapter 35, when Jacob has prophecy with God himself, God also says your name is now henceforth Israel. What's surprising about that is this is the third name change we've had in the Torah. Both Abraham and Sarai become Abraham and Sarah, and they're never called again by their previous name, whereas Jacob is still maintained, he maintains the identity of Jacob, but is also called Israel, and it's used intermittently. And there is an enormous amount of commentary trying to figure out why Jacob didn't have a name change, instead it was a name addition, so he had two names now. Number one. And also, in what context is he called Jacob versus Israel throughout the rest of the Torah? And God calls him both names. The Torah calls him both names. Uh, historically, he's known by both names. It's a, it's a very interesting, um, fascinating exercise, if we want, to try to figure out why precisely, uh, what's the kind of governing, overarching reason why he's called one name versus the other. Now, the meaning behind the name Israel it's interesting. There's a lot of different reasons. I saw something really surprising last night. Uh, well, one of the classic reason, reasons given for the name is that now we know that Abraham had two sons, and one of them is his spiritual heir, and the other one is not. Is uh, Ishmael and Isaac the same thing? Isaac is uh, once again has two sons. Jacob is his true continuity, and not Esau. And now it's almost a shift that's happening here. 
Jacob is coming back with his entire family, and he has this climactic clash with the spiritual angel of Esau. Jacob is victorious, and right away he's given a new name, because now it's being cemented that Jacob and all of Jacob is going to be the Jewish people. So the Jewish people were called the nation of Israel, and therefore Jacob himself is renamed Israel because from his descendants, everyone is going to be comprised of the Jewish people. And he's thus the (coughs) final father, so to speak, of the Jewish people. Now, the name Yisrael, as I saw this last night, it contains within it all the names of all the forefathers of, of Israel. So the Yud, whose name starts with Yud, Jacob, Yaakov, and Yitzchak. The Yisrael, the, the, the second letter is for Sarah. And then the third letter is for Rachel and Rivka, Rachel and Rebecca. Yisrael, the Aleph is for Abraham, and the Lamed is for Leah. Thus, this is not a name just for Jacob, but it's representative of all the forefathers because it's the founding of the nation, so to speak. Uh, in this particular episode, so why does he name him Israel? So he tells him, I'm going to rename you Israel because you struggled with the divine and with man and were successful. And the word struggled in this context is sarisa, like Yisrael, which means to have a struggle. Uh, additionally, the word Yisrael means like a sar. Sar means a, a, a master. Uh, or a noble, nobleman. So that's other other reasons given for Israel's name. But in this context, it's because he struggled with with the angel, with man, and was successful. So it's interesting that he's not named after the victory. To your point, he's not, not named by the after the victory, rather after the struggle, which is surprising. Shouldn't he be? He should be called after the victory. Vatuchal, Vatuchal, which means, and you were victorious, and you prevailed, he should be called, I don't know how they would make that into a name, but make that into a name that he's, that, that's, he's victorious. And it seems like what Jacob and Israel really, and our nation really represent, it's not going to be, our nation is, is really one that's founded in struggle and continues to exist and to thrive in the struggle. Jacob himself leaves a, leads a very chaotic life. If you just, charted from the beginning. He has Esau to contend with. He has to steal the blessing against his nature. He has to go to Laban and deal with him for a whole parasha. Now he's going back uh, to Jacob. He's going to have the episode of Dina, the episode of Joseph. His life is a never-ending struggle. Only at the very end, only then does he does he prevail. And thus, I think our nation, you know, we, it's not going to be a quick turnaround towards success. We're going to have a very long struggle, and that really is what's going to define us. Additionally, another another perspective as to why we're highlighting the struggle over the victory is because where is the victory won is won in the struggle. So, for example, the Talmud tells us that if, if someone selects a path of righteousness, he will end up as righteous. And if someone selects... Um, embarks on the path of wickedness, will end up in that result as well. So where can we affect the outcome? We can't necessarily affect the outcome itself. We can affect the struggle that we choose to select for ourselves, and that will ultimately yield in the result that we want. Almost as if our, uh, our arena of free will 
is much earlier than the result. Sometimes the result is beyond us, and the selection process happens much earlier when it's still in the struggle. And thus, our spiritual life is highlighted not by outcomes, because outcomes are a direct result of the decision and the struggle that uh, predates them. Now, Jacob is injured, and the Torah tells us, this is the third mitzvah in the Torah, after being fruitful, multiplying, and having the circumcision, and it's in fact the last mitzvah in Genesis, so we have 610 to go after we're done with Genesis, it's the mitzvah of prohibition against the consumption of the Gid Hanasha, which is this part of the animal that corresponds to the part of his body that was injured. And like we said, today when you have kosher animals, it's very likely it's not going to be from the hindquarters because it's a very complicated process to remove it, and therefore we just sell that all off to the non-kosher market, and along with all the animals that don't fulfill the rigorous requirements of, of kosher. Now, I saw an interesting commentary in the Chinuch, the Sefer Chinuch. The Chinuch is a 13th century book of unknown authorship. We know who, who his name was, and we know pretty much who he was. We, we're pretty certain that he was the Ra'ah, but it's not a thousand percent sure. It's Rabbi Aaron Halevi. Rabbi Aaron Halevi, he wrote a book which goes through the Torah in order and has a little section on each mitzvah in the order of the Torah. So the entire book of the Chinuch on Genesis contains three mitzvahs, three entries, because it's going uh, throughout the Torah chronologically and is highlighting the 600, counting down the 630 mitzvahs in the flow of the Torah. <coughs> what he does is he gives a little nugget of what the laws of the mitzvah are and the reason behind the mitzvah. Like what's the some of the reasons why we have this mitzvah. So he tells us um, a little bit of a hint that's incorporated in this mitzvah, that even though we may suffer tremendous, this is a quote, we must suffer tremendous uh, pain and suffering in the exile from the nations and from the descendants of Esau, we should be confident that we'll never be destroyed and decimated. Why? We will always ultimately prevail and we always have a way out of our conflict. And whenever we are slaughtering an animal anytime in, in history, and we say, oh, this part we're not eating, it's supposed to remind us of these ideas. And this will be, through this mitzvah, they'll have an eternal remembrance of faith and of righteousness. And we'll remember the struggle with the angel that he had with Jacob, that's the uh, ministering angel of, of Esau, who wanted to up, uproot Jacob from the world th- th- to destroy Jacob and his descendants. And he pained him. Ultimately, he, he was only able to affect his thigh. And so too, throughout history, descendants of Esau will try to cause pain to the descendants of Jacob. And ultimately, there will be salvation for the people of Israel. As it says in this story, that the when the sun rose and Jacob was saved from his pain, so too, once the sun rises, so to speak, the idea of Mashiach, the idea of of completion, we will ultimately triumph. And I think this really highlights a lot of the lessons that we've had in this encounter that Jacob has, the collected encounters that Jacob is about to have and had with Esau and his forces, and uh, the ultimate uh, triumph is, uh, is assured.
Okay, so he actually finally meets Jacob, and this encounter is a little bit of it, a little bit of anticlimactic. Jacob's prepared for a major war and to fight and to split the camp, and it ultimately works out very well. So what happens? Jacob raises his eyes and sees Esau's coming and his four hundred men, um, and he divided up the people and the handmaids and the children went first. Leah and her children, Rachel and Joseph, last. And they hug each other. And they, well, first Jacob runs and he bows seven times. He really submits himself with humility to Esau. They hug each other and they kiss each other and they cry. It's really an emotional um, encounter. Esau is really impressed by the whole by the whole contingency that Jacob has. Who are these children? The children of whom God graciously given to your servant. The handmaids come forth. They and their children they bow. Leah came and she bows, and then her children, Joseph and Rachel, come and they bow as well, and they have a whole conversation. So what's interesting here is that while Jacob was prepared for war, it seems that all his uh, other preparations yielded fruit, and he didn't even have to utilize uh, the war efforts that he had prepared. The commentaries point out that Jacob's submission and humility really uh, assuaged Esau's anger and wrath. And despite the fact that Jacob stole the blessings and maybe was a little bit deceitful with how he got the birthright or whatever, because he submitted himself to Esau with humility, it alleviated his wrath. And I think it's a good lesson for us, you know. You have a group of buddies from college or whatever that you guys always get together. One of them made a big, whatever. He got a job and... Uh, He's working, uh, I don't know, uh, politically, he got a good job, he made a lot of money, he opened a business, he was very successful. Whatever it is, they get back together, there's going to be uh, a potential of envy and an acrimony towards that person. What does he do? You know, he should have humility. You come together, you're one of the boys, you don't worry about, you don't try to flaunt your superiority or your achievements and that way you ensure that you reduce the enmity or, or alleviate, diffuse the enmity that may exist between you and your friends. And I think the lesson for us is, you know, we walk around with the belief that we're God's chosen people. And that's a, that's a big statement. You know, God chose us. And that's, that's a lot for other people to handle. And the reason why a lot of people are so disturbed by that is because they know it's true. What makes it even worse? You're God's people and you walk around with the bravado of God's people. And I think a good lesson for us is that we have to realize is that we're the ones who won in this battle. Jacob and Esau, there was a fight and we won. And we have to win with grace and win with humility. And, you know, and, and to, to be someone who's, be a people who allows the others to shine and doesn't necessarily highlight our own achievements and have the humility to accept the existence of others. And that's a very powerful way to diffuse uh, tension. Of course, it doesn't mean that uh, we just don't prepare for any eventuality. We do, of course, but this is what Jacob demonstrated, this humility, and that's something that we we can use collective as a nation in, in similar situations. Now, they all go and bow before Esau. And if you notice, in verse number 
uh, six and seven, it's always the mother is preceding the children. So the, the mothers of the handmaidens go before the children. Leah goes before her children. Whereas Joseph goes before Rachel. So there's a little bit of an inconsistency. How come when it's describing the three uh, mothers that are not Rachel, they go before their children, but Joseph precedes his mother? So Rashi says that in all the, with all the mothers, the women went before the children, but Joseph went before his mother. Why? He said, my mother's so beautiful. We've already seen that in previous parshas. Like we've, like we mentioned, uh, Esau has a, a thing for women. I don't want him to look at my mother, therefore I'll go in front of her. And therefore Joseph went in front of his mother to shield his mother from the view of Esau. And to me this is always interesting because at this time Jacob, uh, Joseph is maybe uh, six or seven years old. So you can imagine a little six or seven year old, you know, three foot eight or whatever, he's trying to block his mother, it's not really going to work. So it's always, you know, it's like how, what's the real benefit? He's really going to block his mother? Plus his mother's coming anyhow. That, that's always a question. I heard a, I heard an answer. Now this is an atypical answer because it's a very Hasidic answer. You'll see what I mean by that. And I, I like it a lot, so I want to share it here. That Joseph, will learn a lot about Joseph in the upcoming Parshas. But Joseph is always emblematic of holiness. Joseph the major event of his life was he was being seduced by the wife of Potiphar and he resisted and continually resisted him in it. And therefore, he is always presented as a paragon of, of holiness and of righteousness and purity. So the Hasidim say, Hasidic uh, kind of Kabbalistic idea here, is that Joseph was such a powerful vessel of holiness that if you would just look at Joseph, you'd be impacted by him. So Joseph recognized that he wasn't going to shield his mother, but if he was standing in front of her, then Esau would see him before he sees her. Not that just a distraction. Esau sees Joseph. Esau is impacted by the holiness of Joseph, and therefore when he sees Rachel, he now has a little dose of holiness within him, and he's not even going to desire her. He's not even going to pursue her. That's what I heard. Hasidic idea. Do with it what you wish. Benjamin has not been born yet, so of the 12 sons of Jacob that are eventually going to, uh, going to, uh, emerge, only one of them, Benjamin, never bows to Esau. Benjamin's descendant is Mordechai. Mordechai is from the, from the fam, from the tribe of Benjamin. Thus, when he has the, the gall to not bow down to Haman many years later, the commentaries connect that. Because he was not around to submit himself to a human, therefore he had the spiritual power to resist bowing down to Haman. So everyone's bowing down to Haman, but the spiritual heir of Benjamin doesn't. Okay, so they have this encounter. Everyone's bowing down to, to, to Esau. He received that huge bribe. They have a interesting conversation. And initially, Jacob, uh, Esau resists accepting the bribe. Jacob insists on it. He takes it. And Esau dramatically changes his hat from Esau to my brother. And right away, he says, in verse 12, after he accepts the bribe, 
this, ah, you know what, let's, let's go together. No, whereas Jacob or uh, Esau arrived to this battlefield with 400 warriors with the intent on decimating his brother, now, after Jacob's successful intercession, now he says, well, let's live together, let's go together. And Jacob responds, the children are tender, the nursing flocks and cattle, they'll be driven hard for a single day, they'll all die. You go ahead, I'll travel, I'll follow you slowly. And indeed, Jacob was prepared for this eventuality. And he was able to navigate successfully from the threat of Esau. And now he's able to successfully navigate from the threat of his brother. And Esau insists, let's, let me put some people with you. Let's, let's have some sort of, he says, no, don't, don't, don't worry about it. And eventually they head in their opposed, opposing directions. And the narrative concludes, Jacob arrives intact into the city of Shechem. And he buys a parcel of land in the outskirts of the city to settle in. And that's the end of the story. And he arrives complete, when he arrives intact, it means intact from all the threats that he was facing prior. Jacob, it seems like he navigated the two major threats of his life. Rashi compares it as to someone who has to tread carefully between two lions. He had Esau in one hand, he had Laban in the other hand, Jacob managed to get through, and he's complete, and he's settled, and he's assuming for the first time that now peace and tranquility uh, will be his lot. And the first thing that happens is the episode of Dina, and then he'll have to deal with the stories of, um, or the tribulations of, J- of Joseph and Neshri's Parsha. Dina, she goes out. She's the daughter of Leah, who was born to Jacob, and she goes out to hang out with her girlfriends. That's how the story starts off. Now, she's attributed after Leah because, Rashi tells us, because she is demonstrating, she's exhibiting a characteristic that Leah herself had exhibited. If you remember last week, when the episode of the Dudaim, Leah went out to greet Jacob and says, oh, tonight you're with me. So she had a certain characteristic of going out and and seeing the world, and that was manifest in her her daughter. Additionally, if Dina is called Dina, where the word Dina means din, judgment. Why? So Rashi tells us something very interesting. It's apparent that all the wives of Jacob knew that Jacob was destined to have 12 tribes. If you remember, when Jacob arranged the stones around his head, he put 12 stones. It was known to them, prophetically, that that Jacob was going to have 12 sons. Leah had six sons, and the the spouses, uh, the handmaids, they each had two. So there's 10 sons already accounted for. And Leah was pregnant with an 11th child. That child, had it been a boy would have allowed only one son to be left over for Rachel. Leah did not want Rachel to have fewer children than the handmaids, and therefore she prayed, she made a judgment, an internal judgment, and she prayed that the child in utero will become a female. And thus, Dina was intended to be a boy, but early enough in the development stages of the fetus, 
because of the prayer of Leah, Dina turned into a female. That's what Rashi tells us in last week's parsha, and we see with Dina that she's doing what she, what she does here. She gets herself into trouble, so to speak, because she's going out and seeing the world in a way that was non necessarily not, not typical for women, certainly of that time. And uh, the, the verse tells us she was a daughter of Leah, but also we know her backstory that she has tendencies, some masculine tendencies as well, because she was initially supposed to be a boy, and therefore she that's on display when she's out and about to see the world, and unfortunately she gets into trouble, and she is kidnapped by someone by the name of Shechem. Shechem is actually the name of the city and the name of the, of the individual, because they were the ones who were in charge of the city. And he was the prince of the city, and he raped her in multiple uh, conventional and unconventional ways. And he developed a thing for her, and he wanted to marry her. And this was a tremendous, terrible misdeed, really a big embarrassment for the, for the family of, of Israel, of, of, of Jacob. And the story is a little bit surprising what happens, because now Shechem is hell-bent upon marrying her. So he comes to Jacob and he says, I really like your daughter and him and his father. What can we do? How can we make this arrangement work? And the sons of Jacob get involved and they concoct a plan here uh, to get back at the oppressors. And they were very upset. How could it be such an outrage to rape the daughter of Jacob? Who, you know, such a thing is never done. So they tell him like this, you know, we're, we're from the tribe of Abraham and Jacob and Isaac. And what we do is we circumcise. You want to marry into our family, you also have to be circumcised. They say, okay, sure, whatever it takes. The entire nation, entire city of Shechem gets circumcised. And they get circumcised under the pretense that now this wonderful, powerful, rich family is going to integrate within us. And after they're circumcised, so they're all in recovery from their surgery and they're all weakened, two of the sons of Jacob, they take their weapons and they go through the town and put a rampage through the town and kill all the men. It's Shimon and Levi. They extract Dina and Jacob is absolutely furious with his sons. Now, We've seen already that Jacob is someone who's not very violent. He, he prepares for violence if necessary, but he would like to avoid it. And when he tells Shimon and Levi, by the way, if you're in a couple of weeks, we're going to learn about Jacob's death. Before he dies, he gathers all his children around. And with Shimon and Levi, he lumps them together and he curses, not them, but their anger. And he says that the methods that they use were stolen. They didn't use methods, they didn't use uh, approaches that were from our family. They stole them from Esau. We know, we've learned that Jacob, the voice is the voice of Jacob, and the hands are the hands of Esau. Jacob is not violent. But Shimon and Levi, in this episode, they uh, commandeered the weapons of Esau in the way they treated this town. So they kill everyone, all the men, and they plunder the whole city, and they rescue Dina. And Jacob is very disappointed with this, 
And he says, what's going to be now? Everyone's going to come attack us. Now we're exposing ourselves. The whole Canaanite nation is now going to see what happened. And they're going to come after us. And it's going to be really disastrous. And they respond quite simply, are they going to treat our sister like a harlot? To them, the blemish or the attack against the family was so severe that even if it meant exposing themselves to tremendous repercussions, this is something that cannot be uh, tolerated at all. That's the story. Now, I think a few a few things here that need to be examined. We are working with the assumption that the sons of Jacob were righteous. In fact, we're told later on, even um, in this parsha, there is going to be uh, questions upon the righteousness of some of the sons of Jacob, and they're going to be uh, exonerated. So, what is what rationale did Shimon and Levi? What were they? What, what were the what? What vindication did they have to do such a thing to just destroy and kill a whole city? It seems inappropriate. They must have had some sort of justification for, or at least they they in their head considered some sort of justification for this behavior. So the Rambam, uh, he has a section on the seven Noahide laws, and he addresses this. And he says that one of the seven Noahide laws is that they have to establish court system. They have to have law and order. And law and order means that you cannot have anyone, regardless of their stature in the city, they cannot just go and wantonly grab any woman off the street and rape them and then say, oh, I want to marry them. That's unacceptable. And therefore, the entire city that tolerated this kind of behavior, they were all guilty of the sin the Noah, the, uh, one of the seven Noahide sins of not establishing a court of law. And therefore, the, it wasn't just the aggressor, it was the entire city that allowed such an environment uh, to, uh, to prevail. And therefore, they were all guilty, and that was the rationale of Shimon and Levi. That's uh, just a little bit uh, a batch story. But clearly, Jacob did not believe that that was an appropriate response, and he tremendously berated them now, and for eternity, he is going to, uh, he's going to almost curse at least the methods that Shimon Levi employed in, uh, in this episode. And in fact, Shimon Levi together are always attacking him. It's very dangerous, especially in matters of family. And we see this again and again with Shimon Levi specifically together. Whenever they're together and the family's pride or any member of the family is attacked, they go you know, they, they behave in ways that are uh, very, very violent, very atypical of Jewish people. In fact, later on, when Joseph is in Egypt, he actually takes Shimon and puts him in prison, takes him hostage. And the reason why is because he wants to separate Shimon and Levi because when they're not together, they're not as volatile. And Jacob actually institutes that Shimon and Levi are going to be dispersed throughout the people because they're most... Uh, in danger of going off the rails when they're united and they're able to uh, foment this brotherly love to the degree of violence towards anyone who attacks that. Okay, so Jacob heads away. He travels to a different place and the Almighty ensures that no one attacks him. So they don't pursue him at all. And then we learn about the death of Rebekah. 
what's really interesting is that the death of Rebecca is not explicitly stated. It's hinted towards, because it says the death of Devorah, the wet nurse of Rebecca, happened at that time. So it's really surprising. We never heard of Devorah in the Torah, but the Torah describes the death of Devorah, the wet nurse of Rebecca, as a way of telling us that Rebecca died. Why does it not explicitly tell us that Rebecca died? Two reasons. Ramban says a reason because Jacob was out of town and Isaac is blind and Esau is a sinner. So what happened at the death of Rebecca? What was her funeral like? You know, she has a blind husband who's really old. She has a son who's a sinner. And the other son who's righteous wasn't even in town. Thus, in order to not highlight the uh, dishonorable send-off of Rebecca, it just hints at it. That's what the Ramban says. Rashi is a different uh, interpretation. Rashi says, Rebecca, after all, is the mother of Jacob, but she's also the mother of Esau. So, what's going to be throughout history when the Jewish people are under the oppression of Esau's descendants, we're going to have a little bit of a backlash towards Rebecca, her mother. Yes, she's our mother as well, but she's also the mother of our aggressor. And therefore, the Torah doesn't want to highlight her end story because the Torah does not want us to remember her and to attack her, and, and, or, or at least to lambast her, especially now that we've seen uh, the, or the potential of, of Esau as being a tremendous adversary for Jacob. Uh, one of the commentaries on the commentaries, it's called a super commentary, one of the super commentaries on Rashi, he's, he invokes the Talmud. The Talmud declares that if someone is still alive, you cannot curse them. So Rebecca, we know she's been alive you know, until we know otherwise, right? So we don't know that she died because Devorah died. Who's Devorah, right? Yeah, it's hint, hint, she died, but it doesn't tell us that Rebecca died or she's still alive. So if you ask me today, is Rebecca alive? I would say, well, I don't know otherwise, right? <laughs> because she was born and she, she gave birth and she gave birth to Jacob and Esau, and she's still alive for all I know, right? And the Torah, the Talmud says there's a prohibition against cursing someone who's alive. Therefore, because it obscures her death, no one will ever curse her as being the mother of Esau because she's still alive, really, maybe. Jacob's name is reaffirmed by God that he's named Israel. Benjamin is born. Benjamin's birth coincides with the death of Rachel. She's buried outside of of Israel in, Beth, in Bethlehem, it's kind of on the border, and Jacob does not bring her all the way towards Hebron. Hebron, of course, is in uh, eastern Israel, so it's actually not far from the border, but he makes the decision not to do it. And we know later on this is going to be a boon for the Jewish people when they're heading out into Babylon, into exile, they're going to stop at the, uh, at the burial place of Rachel, and they're going to pray there, and Rachel's power, especially with regards to her sacrifice that she made last week in giving up her husband to her sister, is going to really help the Jewish people. And right afterwards, the next event is the episode of of Ruvain. So, but Rachel dies, and the verse says, if you just read the verse very clearly, without any understanding, Reuben goes and lays with Bilhah, his father's concubine. Israel hears, 
and the sons of Jacob were 12. So you just read that verse plainly. It seems like Reuven did a grave sin in sleeping with his father's wife, Bila specifically. But the Talmud tells us, quotes, Kala Omer Reuven Chant, whoever says Reuven sinned, Eino Elatoa, you're nothing but mistaken. So if you said Reuven sinned, I'll tell you, you're mistaken. And if you actually read this verse very critically, you'll see that the verse itself indicates that Reuven, that Reuven didn't sin. So we have to say, okay, so, so if Reuven didn't sin, why is it presented that he did sin? So what did he do actually? So how do we know that Reuben didn't sin? So how does the verse start? Reuben sinned. Apparently a very grave sin. And the verse concludes, the sons of Jacob were 12. What that means is, is that it's, it's uniting all the sons of Jacob together. Reuben was still part of the cadre, still part of the group. He didn't alienate himself because he didn't actually sin. So what did he do? What he actually did was, Rachel died. Rachel was the primary wife of Jacob. And Jacob had his primary residence, so to speak, in her tent. After she died, Jacob transferred that to Billa, who was Rachel's handmaid, and he made her the primary wife. Now, Reuben was disappointed. Reuben's the oldest son of Leah. And he felt that this was a little bit of an affront to his mother, because his mother was a primary wife, and therefore she should have uh, you know, first dib, so to speak, as being the next after Rachel. So what he did, he dragged his father's bed outside of the tent of Billah and into the tent of Leah. That's what he actually did. But the, the way the Torah looks at this is he's meddling with his father's marital affairs. Reuben, you're the son. You, you should, this is none of your business. And the, the second he starts to inject himself into this equation... That's how the Torah presents it. He lay with Billa, but also reminds you, no, the, the sons of, of Jacob are 12. He didn't actually do that, but that's how the Torah considers it. I'll give you another example of this. The Torah, when the Torah looks at a sin, it always amplifies it. When Moses hits a rock and extracts water to give to drink for an entire nation, the Torah views it as a sin, and, and how does it describe it? You don't have faith in God. Yan lohe emantimbi. Moses, of all people, does not have faith in God. That's what the Torah says. The way the Torah treats tzaddikim is that any sin that they do, any slight misdeed, is always amplified to it the greatest possible extent. Held to a much higher standard. So if Moses hits a rock, instead of talking to a rock, to us it's like, you know, that he brought water out of a rock. Isn't that impressive enough? But there's a slight benefit that he could have had if he spoke to instead of hitting it, and therefore, the Torah says, Moshe, Moshe has no faith in God. Similarly, the Talmud tells us, if you whiten the face of another person, it's as if you killed them. So you embarrass someone publicly, they, their face turns as white as a cadaver. Dead person, right? Dead person's face is white, all the blood is drained. So you, bl- you drain the blood of some person, it's as if you killed them, says the Talmud. <coughs> Did you really kill them? No, they're still alive, and they still have a long, fruitful life. But... A slight sin is amplified. So too here, Reuben's sin is amplified. And that's, I think, very instructive when we study the Torah to realize that the Torah has a way of presenting things. And it's, 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 it's written in its own language. It's not written in Hebrew or English or whatever. It's written in Torah language. And one of the methods the Torah language employs is that it always takes the sins, especially the sins of the tzaddikim, and amplifies them uh, 
beyond recognition, so to speak, from what it actually was. Isaac dies. Uh, Esau and Jacob bury him. It's interesting that Esau does not allow Jacob to go before him. So whereas when Abraham died, Ishmael allowed his younger brother to go before him, Isaac. When Isaac died, Esau did not allow his younger brother to go before him. And then it gives us, the end of the Parsha concludes with a just an enumeration of the descendants of, of Esau. There's a little bit of a curiosity when it describes who he marries. In this week's Parsha, it describes he marries a woman by the name of Basmas, the daughter of Yishmael. This same woman, two weeks ago, the Parsha is called Machlas. So Rashi asks, why does it change the name of the wife of Esau, who's married, uh, who's the daughter of Ishmael, from, Bas- from Basmas to Machlas? So Rashi tells us that when someone gets married, it's one of the three instances when someone's sins are absolved. There's three times when someone's sins are absolved. One of them is when someone gets married. The word Machlas, to Mochel, means to absolve sin. And therefore, we're told that when even someone like Esau, who gets married, his sins are absolved. And I think it's a nice lesson, or these three instances, uh, that when someone reaches a point in their development that sin becomes less of a likelihood, sin is indeed absolved. The Parsha ends with a detailing, very long detailing of the sons of Esau. Once we're done with Esau, he's never again mentioned in the Torah. And next week, we're going to see what happens to Jacob once apparently all the factors, all all the chaos, uh, all the confusion, and all the various episodes uh, of his life seem, uh, of the chaos in his life seem to have been concluded. And he tries to settle down and things do not go exactly as planned.